Cardology is now presented by Sardine, and I couldn't be more excited. You'll get to meet their founder, Soups, and some of the team later this quarter, and you'll hear a bit more about why they've caught the attention of some of the smartest fraud leaders I know throughout crypto, fintech, financial services, and e-commerce. Thanks again to Sardine for supporting this episode of Fraudology. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to this week's Thursday episode of the Fraudology podcast, where we dive into the science and study of online fraud from the perspective of an e-commerce fraud fighter. I'm Carice Hendrick. Talking with Frank and Mary Ann on Tuesday's episode about the predictions we had for 2023 made me realize that there were two of mine that I kind of got wrong, or at least they haven't been as impactful to the fraud industry, especially for online companies and e-commerce, as I first predicted, at least not in the first six months of this year anyway. So I thought that for today's episode, I would talk about them a little bit and dive into those two that I'm not going to say I got wrong, but I definitely didn't get as right as I thought I would when sharing the predictions. And I think it's you know just as important as it is to celebrate our wins and when we got our prediction right. Although, like we said on Tuesday, it's not like, I mean, when it comes to fraud predictions, it's not like we wanted to be right. But I do think fighting fraud is all about following our intuitions. And so when our intuition is correct and we're able to prove that, it's important to celebrate that and learn from it. And when our intuitions are a little off and something else happens and we expected, it's really important to learn from that too. And so, like I said, today's episode, I wanted to just talk about two of them that were specifically my predictions that didn't come out the way that I thought they would, at least as quickly as I thought they would. And in a way that's really actually a good thing. I see that as a good thing. But that doesn't mean that they're not ever going to come into effect and impact your companies or fraud as a whole. So I thought it just was worth a little bit more time to talk about in depth than I could on Tuesday's episode. Besides, I love talking with Frank and Marianne and always learn so much and always feel smarter after talking with them that I didn't want to take up all the time talking about these two things. So, but I do think that they're still important. And one is the first one is relevant to the fraud industry in all areas. So whether that's banking, financial institutions, fintech lending, e-commerce, marketplaces, etc. The second one is a little bit more specific to e-commerce, though it's a follow-up to an episode I did last July on changes that Visa was making to, well, updates that Visa was making, and that will come clear why I'm changing that term in a little bit, but updates that Visa made to their chargeback policies that I was really concerned would have a much bigger impact on the e-commerce industry than it has so far. And I had been meaning to provide an update on that for a little while. So I thought that this was a good time to do that. So the first prediction that I, like I said, didn't get wrong, but didn't get as right as I expected. Frank and I talked a little bit about on Tuesday's episode, but the prediction itself was massive coordinated cyber and fraud attacks will emerge as a standard model. And that was really based on everything we had seen with the master manipulators that Shoshana and I talked about back in November. They were really doing a lot of different variations of cyber plus fraud. 
whether that was a DDoS attack on a data verification vendor to then have that system go down so that orders would just bypass the data verification vendor while it was down and be approved during Black Friday, Cyber Monday, the most, the busiest days of the year in e-commerce, or how we saw their entire organization being insular. So all the uh, cardholder data they were getting and everything else weren't bought from any big card dumps or anything else. It was all harvested internally. So there was no trail to follow on the dark web or Telegram or any other type of fraud forum. And that part is still happening. And I do think that this trend of a hybrid of cyber and fraud will continue because let's be honest, it's really only our side that have put parameters around cybersecurity and the more technical data gathering and hacking, the true meaning of hacking, not ATOs, and then putting silos between that and financial fraud and those behaviors. On the criminal side, they love our silos because they will just stomp all over them and take advantage of them. You know, usually there's a lot of gaps in between silos and that's where they love to play. So I am, I definitely think that that trend as a whole, as coordinated cyber and fraud attacks will emerge as a standard model, I think we'll still see that for sure. As far as the master manipulators with their address manipulations and the other MOs that we on the the retailers know what those specifics are, I've been careful not to share. But anyone in fraud knows that we have our ways of identifying fraud rings and knowing which attempts and which attacks belong to which entity. We really haven't seen those as much. By all accounts that I've been told, it's been really quiet from them since January of February of 2023. I do know that they were hitting some medium-sized retailers, brand name companies into the new year, but that also kind of fizzled out. And so it makes me think that they're probably, they've probably changed tactics for a while. I know based on, and I even shared a story last Thursday about a large cybercrime syndicate that was busted and 2,700 modern day slaves and victims of human trafficking were freed in the Philippines and that a lot of them were doing crypto investment scams or what we call pig butchering scams, which talked about in the past on previous episodes before. That term comes from the fraudsters themselves and that's what they call it. It's actually, that's the translation of it from a Chinese term to an English term, but it basically means fattening the pig to slaughter. So it's kind of a slower play of a social engineering targeted attempt on consumers to gain their trust and have them invest a lot of crypto or invest a lot of money in crypto, but unfortunately they never get their money out. I had a good episode with Asaf Kipnis on that about a month and a half ago. I also did a solo episode titled The Anatomy of Pig Butchering of a Pig Butchering Scam that if you want to know more about that, you can go there. But this is all purely speculation, but the organization that was behind the master manipulators hasn't had their victims of human trafficking and modern slavery focused on other types of scams because one big part of what made them successful was hiding in the noise because the holiday season and Q4 is so busy in e-commerce that it's easier to hide in all of the the high traffic and high transactions. So that was a big component of their fraud scheme, which is why Black Friday and Cyber Monday was so intense. And as I said back then, that's not typical. Usually holiday fraud, we'll see the actual payment fraud in e-commerce happening more in like late September, October, maybe like early November. Because if you think about it, the people who are wanting to sell to the masses on secondary markets and things like that, they want to kind of get their inventory up before 
the holiday season and not compete with retailers or not try to get product for their customers, quote unquote, at the same time that shipping deadlines and shipping timeframes are pushed out, things like that. Obviously, triangulation is another beast. That's why this hid so well. But that's I'm just going to stop there because I could go down that rabbit hole and then not get to the rest. Don't want to do that. But what is happening still beyond, you know, the master manipulators not really taking over and not seeing any DDoS attacks on fraud providers that I know of, at least not ones that are as massive as the one on Black Friday and the attempts on Cyber Monday as well. And there were actually there was more than one verification vendor that were targeted, but one was definitely impacted more than the other. I haven't heard of that anyways, not at that scale. That scale, my phone was blowing up. And I love the fact that so many people are like, oh, everything's hitting the fan. We need to call Carice. I actually do really like that because a lot of times I can go, oh, yeah. And I know that that's one reason why people are doing it is to say, hey, is anyone else seeing this? And sometimes I'll be the first one. And then like a day or two later, or in this case, on Black Friday, it was like an hour or two later, I was hearing from more and more people going, oh, yep, this is a big deal. So as far as cyber and fraud attacks being coordinated, there are some other things that are happening. So we are still seeing some of these more insular crime organizations with everything that's in-house. So they're not taking advantage of fraud as a service. They're not purchasing lists from hackers. Everything is within the same organization. So there's nothing really to trace or to track on fraud forums because these crews don't sell or share information. So that was something that was big at the time with the master manipulators was the first few people who called me were asking, hey, was there a large like dump of card data that was sold out in the market somewhere? Like, have you heard anything? Because, you know, I used to, but I was like, that's not really happening anymore. Either it's account data or it's kind of spliced more or it's been... The data has been harvested to actually confirm that it has accounts or confirm that the card is valid, things like that. It's just it's not the way it was five or six years ago. But also, oftentimes, just because there's no noise on the dark web doesn't mean that there's not anything wrong. And I think that those of us that have been around for a long time remember back in 2013 when the Target breach and the Home Depot breach, and there were others too, that we kind of knew that those were happening before they were ever announced because there was a lot of for lack of better term, chatter about them. People were bragging about it and there was ads about large lists being for sale and things like that. I don't think we're really going to see that anymore. We certainly haven't seen it in a while. So I do know that some CISOs or some other leadership will say, has there been a large breach somewhere? Is that why we're seeing this? But you can start to educate them and say, well, it's not really how it works anymore because they know that we could read the tea leaves and know something was happening. And especially with credit card fraud, they know that if the banks hear where that point of compromise was, and it was a large point of compromise like the target breach was, well, what the banks did is they just went back and deactivated every single credit card that had ever made a purchase at a target store within those dates. And so then all of a sudden that list becomes useless. I don't know if you know anyone listened to or I mean, I know a lot of people did, but I don't know if you, know, you specifically listened to the episode with Robbie Perry. I think that was I want to say early 2021, maybe, but he used to be on the issuer side and he specifically talked about that and how issuing bank changed, issuing banks changed how they handled deactivating cards and reissuing cards after those two large breaches. And I found it fascinating, if not, you know, a little frustrating, just because I think a lot of times every part of the ecosystem minimizes how much of an impact they have or their decisions have internally to other pieces of the ecosystem, right? So if banks decide, oh, we're not going to reissue cards anymore, 
we'll just look for suspicious activity on those ones that might have been compromised, and then we'll cancel it. Well, when CMP merchants have the liability, you may not catch that suspicious activity for the first few transactions, and then that's impacting them. There's a lot of other things that e-commerce merchants can do to impact banks and vice versa, and all the way through the ecosystem. So I'm not just meaning to pick on issuers, but that's just one example. So we are seeing those more insulated groups and those more professional crime organizations, like I talked about on Thursday, cyber criminals are realizing really fast that there's a lot more money and a lot less risk in cyber crime than there is in trafficking drugs or in trafficking humans for sex trade, etc. And I don't think we're going to see the end of that. It's really scary. Also, in that category of cyber and fraud, we are continuing to see more malware and fraud combinations. This is something that way back in episode, I want to say it was 13, I wrote it down here. It was. It was episode 13 on December 3rd of 2020. I had Ellie Dominance on the podcast. He's the CEO of Tick Cyber. And he was talking about this then. But I've been hearing more evidence of this happening and of more e-commerce and banks seeing this than even two years ago. So essentially, there's a whole lot of login malware out there. So when a user clicks on a link from a phishing email or on a social media ad or anything else, all the different ways that that can happen, when they open a file, and obviously they're not being told it's a malware file, they think it's an important PDF or something like that, their device can be infected with malware. And for these login malware, whenever that infected device is goes to a login page, whether that's for a bank, investment funds like Frank talked about on Tuesday, or investment accounts, I should say, like Frank talked about on Tuesday, or that's the employer login, or that's any e-commerce login site. Whenever there's a login site, all of that information from the login page is sent back to the host malware. I've seen this demonstrated in real time, and it's terrifying. They're not just sending the username and password. They're sending the entire session data, the type of device, the browser version, the language of the browser, the size of the screen, all the things that fraud fighters have come to have to rely on, especially for account security and identity purposes, those are all being sent back to these malware hosts and they're harvesting it all. So then they're able to then sell it forcers to then monetize. So the cyber guys are collecting the data and then they're selling it to fraudsters to monetize. And the way they're selling these is kind of in two ways. One, it's either like a massive list of hundreds or thousands of logins all at one bank or all at one company. Other times it's a new version of a FULLS, F-U-L-L-Z, where it might be one victim and you can get 20 different accounts that they have. So you can get their airline miles, you can get their credit card login, their banking login, their investment funds login and all that and purchase it for relatively inexpensive. And then, and of course, if you picked one person, a lot of times their device information doesn't change. So you can use the same emulator session. And they're essentially plugging all of that information from the session data into an emulator to have it look like the real account holder is accessing that account. And what's even scarier is that there are a lot of other malwares and these are getting way more popular since 2020 when I had that conversation with Ellie for the podcast. This malware will actually allow fraudsters to log into the affected device to access accounts using the true user's device without that owner knowing that their device was accessed. So say, heaven forbid, somebody has malware infected on my main device, they will gather all that information and it will all be sent to them as far as what accounts I have and all that. And they'll probably have access to my email login because, you know, you got to log into your email too. And they'll just watch it for weeks. And then they'll decide to go to town and monetize it. And if it was malware like Ursniff, 
Orgozy, Dreambot, Popris, any of those. And those are kind of all different names for Ursniff. U-R-S-N-I-F, if you want to look it up. They could actually, the not the malware owner, but they can give away the access and they can then access my device while I'm sleeping. They'll know based on the browser language and the timestamp and all that, that I'm on Pacific time. They'll usually do it when I'm sleeping, but they can even do it when I'm on my device and I won't know it. And that's terrifying. So a lot of times when people call me and say, we have customers that are swearing up and down that this is account takeover or they're issuing chargebacks when saying they didn't do it, but the device information is the same and everything looks the same. Or sometimes it's like, well, the IP is the same except for the last couple octets. Other times it's exactly the same. In 2020, Ursniff and all those other versions of it was the second most active malware, responsible for more than 30% of all malware detections. That was three years ago. So it's very possible. And that's why I had Ellie come on. And actually, I also had someone else from Q6, Robert Villanueva, come back on episode 80 on March 21st of 2022 to talk about the impact of Russian sanctions on e-commerce fraud. That was a fascinating conversation. Robert used to be, uh, he's former Secret Service for in the U.S., uh, he was the foremost expert on Eastern European cybercrime for the Secret Service for many years. And they talked about these types of issues on both of the episodes. I think Ellie went a little bit more in depth into it and exactly what's happening and things like that. Because their company provides financial institutions, fintechs, e-commerce, etc. with preventative info about users with infected devices to those clients. So those are good episodes to look at if you want more information about those. But I think, you know, half of fighting fraud is just knowing what's possible. And that's a really big thing that I try to cover on the podcast is sharing with you guys everything that I know is possible, almost everything, the things that can be shared publicly. So when you come across it in your business, you're like, oh, I wonder if it's this. But those are just two ways that I know of that cyber and fraud skills are teaming up to create more financial losses due to fraud. But due to their successes, I'm sure that there will be more. There are probably more that I don't know about. But those are just two of the best examples I could give. So just because I haven't seen the master manipulators at work recently does not mean that we are not going to continue to see people with cyber skills and fraud skills teaming up offline, not talking about people that are purchasing their skills and, oh, yeah, I'm going to buy this data or this or that. But it's a lot more dangerous when there's no tracks for us to follow. So then the next prediction that it's something wrong. I just got it. And like I said, I'm really glad that I that this didn't happen as quickly as I feared. But the prediction was merchant fraud losses will spike after new compelling evidence rules go into effect. And there's a lot more information on those compelling evidence rules on episode 110 from July 6th. Of, and I talked about, I provided a few more updates about it after that episode, but then I kind of went quiet about it. And there are reasons for it. I mean, the simplest one is I was getting a lot of conflicting information. And honestly, Visa was not posting about these publicly. They weren't releasing the information publicly until far later in the year. As I mentioned that episode, this was very different from any other chargeback rule change that they've announced in the past, where standard rule changes are usually announced in October for the following year, where the changes in April go into effect. Every one of your users has different motivations to be on your website. Some want to buy today and others just want to browse your products and services for now. Some will become your biggest customers, while others who might appear very similar will try to steal as much as they can from your company before you identify them. Spec recognizes that not every user on your website is the same. 
And that's why they wanna help you orchestrate your customer journeys based on each customer's purpose and motivations, all without any internal engineering resources or APIs. Spec allows you to learn so much more about the unique customer journeys on your website and design different paths with more or less verification based on those journeys, all without requiring you to change your current fraud or identity vendors and without any code on your end. I know those of us in fraud are trained to believe that if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. But when it comes to spec, that belief doesn't apply. So visit www.specprotected.com, that's S-P-E-C protected.com, to learn more about their trust cloud or to schedule your customized demo soon. Uh, last year in June, uh, Visa representatives started to host webinars and sessions at conferences for enterprise fraud professionals to talk about this. And I'll share a little bit later about why I suspect that they were doing that, why they gave them such a long heads up. But just to give a little bit more background. So last June, Visa announced new compelling evidence rules for card not present. So e-commerce, mobile merchants last year that did go into effect April 15th of 2023. Even more background, when a cardholder disputes a transaction on a credit card, when this happens on other some other payment methods too, but for all intents and purposes, we're just going to talk about credit cards today. When a cardholder disputes a transaction for any reason, whether it's the item wasn't as described on the website, or I don't know what this is, you know, I don't recognize the person, or fraud, which is supposed to mean that their credit card was stolen. Whenever those disputes happen, there's a reason code. And when the fraud reason code is selected, it's selected by the cardholder's bank. But there's really no issuer or cardholder accountability or requirements to file a fraud chargeback. So prior to 2011, I feel like I've said this a lot on the podcast or anyone that has worked with me on a chargeback uh, project or that I've worked with on a chargeback project know, or that I've provided chargeback training to knows that I still have not forgotten this because it made a giant difference in just the sheer amount of chargebacks with a fraud reason code that online companies started receiving. Prior to 2011, when a cardholder called their bank and said that fraud happened, they would have to fill out a fraud affidavit and they'd have to solemnly swear that they were not involved in the transaction. Their card number, their card was out of their possession or the card number had been obtained somehow. Uh, and they would often or always be reissued a new credit card. After 2011, that went away and there was no longer any requirements. So someone could call and say, my card was charged and I didn't tell them that they could. Okay, fraud. Or I don't know who this merchant is. Oh, it must be fraud. So it became a catch-all for everything. And honestly, when I've done, I've done a lot of chargeback assessments for online merchants. And usually when diving into the details, 40 to 60% of chargebacks that are coded as fraud aren't really fraud. They aren't a case of the credit card being used by someone else other than the cardholder. It could have been that it was someone in their family that used it, or usually it's they use the card, but they're accusing the merchant of fraud for some reason, which should be under a service reason code. But I'm going to try not to go too much on all my boxes about that. But the fraud reason code is the only chargeback that doesn't have any prerequisites for cardholders to provide, like proof that they tried to contact the company or anything like that. So it often is inflated and it can cause a lot of issues down the line, especially if merchants are automatically feeding all fraud chargeback reason codes into their fraud systems, right? It can then 
create more false positives and so many other issues. But it also just mucks up the system. And now we have so many more chargebacks. I mean, like, I don't even know, but it's at least five times, if not 10 times, at least more chargebacks in the system than we did 10 years ago. That's anecdotal, but I mean, it's probably not that far off. So after that big spike in fraud chargebacks, online merchants advocated to Visa and MasterCard and said, hey, we have to be allowed to provide you with extra evidence. If this cardholder has made a purchase before on that same card and shipped the product to the same place, we should be able to show you that that's not fraud. Or if the email address that the person used to book that trip, when I put it into Facebook, it pulls up their Facebook profile. And on their Facebook profile, look at that. They're in Hawaii, but they're disputing this trip to Hawaii saying it wasn't them. Or there's so many other things. So compelling evidence provided a way for merchants not to stop the chargeback from being filed. Issuers always have the first and the last say in the chargeback process, but they to give them a chance of recourse. So they're still at the chargeback fee. And if they have too many chargebacks over 1% threshold monthly, they can be fined for that. But they at least were given the chance to get their money back, the bulk of the money back for transactions. But last year, that changed, at least based on everything I had. And I watched every webinar that was made available to me and some that people recorded that they were invited to on the subject. And they were all pretty much the same. But based on everything I had been able to gather from that, as well as some of the larger merchants that Visa had had one-on-one -on -one meetings with to talk about these changes, I had every reason to believe that by great restricting the type of evidence allowed by online merchants to prove that a chargeback was involved in the transaction, that, that merchant fraud losses would spike. I'm not going to go into all the details, but they basically took away the ability to say, hey, this customer has been here before, unless it had been more than twice on the same device within the last 120 days. There, almost every online merchant I've talked to is like, we don't usually see the same customer more than three times in four months. And if we do, it's a recurring transaction. And in that case, the device isn't captured. So therefore, it wouldn't count. Visa came out and said, we're going to greatly restrict type of evidence that merchants can provide to say, hey, this isn't fraud. We deserve our money. And I still think that, you know, it will, we will see a spike in that. But the impacts haven't been as immediate as expected. And like I said, that is a really good thing. I am not complaining about it at all. But to provide a little bit of an update, when I was at the Merchant Risk Council conference, Visa held a session and there were no signs saying that it was excluded to media or to solution providers or anyone else. So I assumed that I was welcome to be there. And a representative stated that Compelling Evidence 3.0 was not a rule change. It was only an update. And she said that Compelling Evidence 2.0, so the rule that allowed more evidence and proof for merchants to win chargebacks and get their the fraud claim reversed in their favor, would still be accepted. So they made it very, very clear that it was an update, not a change. So they were just saying, we just added a way for merchants to automatically win with this much higher bar of proof and evidence, but they can still win if they provide the lower bar. And so I asked and voiced a little bit of concern from other merchants that I'd have conversations with that if a higher bar was introduced, more issuers would deny chargeback wins. So denying a chargeback win is actually what they do is they issue a pre-arbitration. Since in the chargeback process, the merchant, like I said, and the cardholder get the first and the last word in the decision. They decide if they're filing a chargeback 
And then the merchant can rebuttal it. But at the end of the day, they can say, eh, we accept it or no, we don't. And it's a very self-governed process. So I was assured at that time that issuers would still accept 2.0 evidence because they wouldn't want to be taken to arbitration. And if they didn't accept 2.0 evidence, that they could be taken to arbitration, which was I shared in a previous episode, which I forgot to look up which episode that was, but it was one about to arbitrate or not arbitrate or something like that. So if you search arbitration or arbitrate, you should be able to find it. But arbitration essentially is having someone at Visa, an independent third party that doesn't really have skin in the game, look at both sides of the evidence and decide who should win the chargeback. Did the merchant do everything that they could to make sure that the person was who they said they were and deserve that money? Or was the cardholder really the victim of fraud? And so up until recently, and even still, honestly, I think the conventional wisdom in the industry regarding arbitration has been just not to file arbitration. Because while, yes, you do get kind of like almost like a judge who doesn't have any skin in the game, it's not the issuer who's representing the cardholder, it's not the acquirer that's representing the merchant, you do get to see, have them review it. The loser, like the person who the arbitrator finds owes the money, so whether that's the merchant or the cardholder, the issuer or the acquirer need to pay not only the full amount of the transaction, so if it was a $5,000 trip and the merchant proved that the cardholder did participate in the transaction and they did benefit from that trip and it was their card, the issuer would have to pay back the merchant $5,000 because pre-arbitration process, they would have taken it back. And then they would have to either tell their cardholder, sorry, you didn't win, or they would have to be out that 5000 but on top of that, in that example, the issuer would also have to pay an additional fee for the arbitration, which can range from $400 to $700, depending on different factors. So, you know, for the longest time in the industry, everyone's been told it's not worth filing arbitration. Just count your losses and move on. And if it's a lot of money, you can take the cardholder to collections, but that's a separate process in itself. But in recent years, when I'm working with merchants on chargeback projects, I've led A-B tests on arbitrations with the caveat that it's when all the rules are fulfilled with the documentation we provide. The document has everything in the correct order, is using the correct terms, all that. I have templates that I customize for or that I have customized for clients in the past that fulfill all of those things. And by far, the merchants have won more arbitrations than they've lost especially for merchants that only have a very like razor thin profit margin on transactions, but they're, but if they lose the money to a chargeback, they're responsible for all of it. So whether it's ticketing or travel, or there's a lot of other situations where a merchant may only make five to $10 on a $700 transaction during the sale. But if there's a chargeback, then they're out that $700. And it varies on different things in different use cases, but there's a lot of them. So especially for those merchants, they've found it to be very beneficial to, well, let's pick 10 chargeback cases that are high dollar, that we feel like we have every piece of evidence that meets compelling evidence 2.0. 3.0 is very, very difficult, as I said, to be able to prove. And let's try to go to arbitration. And almost always they win. It's always been a positive ROI for sure. So from that, as well as other conversations I've had with other experts, and there's really only one chargeback management company that I find to be credible and know their stuff, but they've done this too and found a lot of success. So it can be very beneficial to do arbitration. And so if you are finding, for whatever reason, if you're responding to chargebacks with uh, evidence that won chargebacks before April 15th, but they aren't now, if it's a high enough dollar, maybe try arbitration. Also, those merchants 
often saw their chargeback win rate go up, meaning that they had a lot less pre-arbs from the issuer. Since issuers have access to know if a specific merchant has gone to arbitration in the past and how often they do it. So we honestly tracked like, huh, our win rate went up. And our pre-arbs went down because uh, it was filed in the, the master system. And I, I know what it's called, but like that's just gets way too nerdy. But the issuer was able to see, oh, if we say that this doesn't win, if we have the last say and we say, nope, we win this, the merchant might go to arbitration and we're going to lose and we're going to have to pay that extra fee. So it's not worth it. We'll just give it to them. That's the thing about a subjective process, right? Like just because it's not, even though it's not fair, there still are ways to benefit from it. Other times, my clients have had their acquirer notify the issuer of their intent to go to the card brand for arbitration. So they've filed the form for arbitration. And then the issuer re suddenly reverses the pre-arb without going to arbitration and says, oh, never mind. We'll just let you have this one. So there are things to be to consider there. So like I said, if you are seeing that you're sending the same documentation that you did prior to April 15th, but you're losing more, it may be worth looking at arbitration as that's what the visa representative suggested. As they said, this was an update, not a change. And by most accounts from most merchants, they aren't seeing their chargeback win rate change much. And so that's where I was wrong. And I'm glad I was wrong. I mean, I have some theories on that and it could change at any time. But so far, as long as, you know, the documentation was working before and they had things in the right order and the right place and, and their acquirer was working on their behalf for them, that's one thing that not all acquirers or payment processors are doing. Then the majority of e-commerce merchants I've talked to are actually not seeing a huge spike in chargeback losses. Oh, speaking of acquirers and payment processors that don't always fight or do what they need to on behalf of their merchants, there are some payment processors and a couple of them are some of the biggest for e-commerce companies. Some of the newer ones that aren't traditional acquirers that will not allow their merchants to file arbitration. So that is something to be aware of. If you contact your payment processor and say, hey, I want to file arbitration, and especially if they're one of the, you know, more popular ones from the last 10 years, they may tell you that that's not available. And unfortunately, that's their right and something that you probably or your company probably agreed to in the merchant agreement. That may not be enough to change processors, but something to know. Some of them don't even allow second times, but that's like a whole other conversation. But I just wanted to note that if anyone goes and says, hey, I want to do this for arbitration and they're told, oh, we don't do that. Well, know that unfortunately that's not a right that they have to give you, but it is one that traditional acquirers will provide and can be very advantageous. That is your next step in chargebacks if you feel like the rulings are unfair. So like I said, it's hard to know if that will last, but right now, I'm really happy that there isn't this sudden spike in fraud losses or losses for merchants on transactions that were really friendly fraud and that should never have probably been a fraud charge in the first place. But it's always hard to know how long it'll last and issuers could adapt and decide to raise the bar to 3.0 standards or Visa could change this from an update to a change, making it mandatory and making 2.0 no longer allowed. It's hard to know. And I try to keep up as much as possible. But because I don't work for a large e-commerce company directly anymore, I don't always, I'm not always privy to every update, but I sure try. The one thing I would say is that the couple of merchants who are saying, who have told me that they have received a letter back to them telling them that the chargeback will not be found in their favor because the rules for chargebacks have changed since April 15th of 2023. That is more than likely coming from your acquirer. 
and a change they made on their end, thinking that the issuers were going to do that too. Or maybe it was because they were going by the you know original verbiage of compelling evidence 3.0 that did call it a change and not an update and did make it sound like compelling evidence 2.0 was going to be obsolete and no longer accepted. So I hope you guys were all able to follow that. I know I can get super nerdy about chargebacks and I try to keep it to be, you know, at least something you can follow or just it's easy to follow. I mean, a lot of you are smarter than me on these things, but there are so many details and just these very specific rules and everything, especially with Visa and MasterCard chargebacks that I'm very grateful that I had to memorize all the rules and regulations and the entire process at the very beginning of my career. There's no way I could have learned that without being in a classroom for six weeks when I worked for a merchant processor that at the time, especially, they really, it was really important to them that everyone who answered the phone even really understood the process and could provide answers. And I know that unfortunately, everyone has that luxury when calling their acquirer or their merchant processor for payments. So it's a skill and knowledge that has come in handy to me over the years. And that is why you know I originally started my consultancy to really focus on chargebacks because there is so much you can learn about your company through them. And there's actually a lot of things that merchants can do when you do know the rules and understand kind of the game, so to speak. So those are my updates on the things that six months ago I thought would be a bigger deal than they are. Again, I'm very glad that they aren't. But that could change at any time. So I thought that I'd provide a little bit more context explanation for what is going on. And we'll just see what the next six months unfolds. I mean, man, with the last several years we've had, I'd say the last three or four years, especially, you never know what's going to come in the next six months. And that can be a good thing. It can be really scary. I did want to say thank you to everyone who has downloaded the Fraudology Benchmarking Survey so far. If you have not, I highly recommend it. I will say I just learned like two weeks after it's been out that while we talked about it on the podcast episode, we forgot to include how many people we surveyed in the actual report, which I think like that's the best part because no other survey I've seen has surveyed more than maybe 100, 150 merchants. And a lot of times they're all using the same provider if it's if the actual survey is performed by a provider and those are the only contacts they know, blah, blah, blah. But we had 457 online merchants of all sizes and all of the demographic data is in the that survey. That's a lot. And it was all one person per company that was responsible for fraud. So again, if you haven't downloaded it yet, I highly recommend it. I'm so proud of it, you guys. And I'm so grateful to all of you who have sent really kind notes about it. Other people have shared what their takeaways were and what surprised them, how they're going to use it, as well as anything that can help us do better next year. We, It is our hope, Shoshana and I's hope, that this will be an annual survey. And if you are having any conversations with any at Forder, make sure that you thank them that they made this available without requiring your email address. I you know, really want to encourage good behavior, not just from them, but maybe from solution providers, you know, other solution providers, right? Maybe this can be the new normal. Wouldn't that be awesome? But we do have to reward and encourage good behavior. All right, you guys, that's it for me this week. I look forward to talking with you again next week. Talk to you soon. Thank you.
thank you again to Sardine for sponsoring this episode of Fraudology and for supporting information sharing and collaboration across the fraud fighter ecosystem. You can learn more about the team and their mission at Sardine via the link in today's episode description.